Today on Ag News Daily. We did the closest thing to a normal spring planning um, as, as what uh, you could expect given the, the crazy circumstances that exist in America today. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here on this Friday edition of the Ag News Daily podcast. Delaney Hell joins me as well as, do we have Ashton on the call too? We certainly yes. do. Fantastic. Well, Delaney, what is going on in your world today? Hmm. I, I got to say, not a lot going on today. I'm glad it's Friday. All right. Well, that's good. Good to have a slow day every now and again. How about you, Ashton? What's happening down there? You still in Dallas or you're back in Lubbock? No, I'm in Lubbock, um, but we're going to, me and my roommate, we're going to go visit her parents in Cristobal near San Angelo and go visit with them for the weekend and kind of sit out by the pool. So I'm, I'm happy that it's also getting to be the weekend. Absolutely. I tell you what, yesterday was a crazy day in the markets. We talked about it on the podcast with the Dow Jones dropping substantially, crude oil dropping substantially, the grains showing surprising resilience. And now we roll into today. The Dow is rebounding, oil is rebounding, the grains are meh on today. But I mean, guys, the world just continues to turn. Delaney, what headlines Mm -hmm. are you watching today? Well, one of the headlines I am watching for today is looking at the meat probe that's going on right now in the beef industry specifically. Tyson Foods has announced that it's cooperating with the Justice Department as they continue to check into this price fixing in the, I'm sorry, in the poultry industry, not the beef industry. There are two different criminal probes going on right now. So this one is is specifically related to the poultry industry. They are indicating, Tyson is indicating that they might just go ahead and settle, which to me indicates that they were guilty because why would you settle if you were not guilty? Um, well, Delaney, I mean, before you what? start casting aspersions, okay. um, a lot of reasons to settle, even when you're not guilty. Granted, it does lend an air of guilt, but a lot of companies might just say, hey, you know what, this is not going to be worth the headache of mm, a trial. I suppose. And guilty or not, they're just going to, you know, pay the pay the fine and move forward. And typically, the reason I, the only reason I'm kind of making this an issue is typically with a settlement like this, there is a clause that they are not pleading guilty. Oh, okay. I didn't realize that part. So it's not an admission of guilt. It's just a, all right, go away, investigators. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. I suppose I should not have passed judgment then. Well, you know, granted what we saw in Pilgrim's Pride, uh, you don't act in cahoots unless you have another person to be in cahoots with. So I guess we'll just leave it at that and let listeners make up their own minds. Okay, we can absolutely do that. Perfect. But so do we know a price or how much they're wanting to settle for? No, but this uh, current lawsuit that's been filed against them, class action lawsuit was for the years of 2008 to 2016. So I'm guessing it's going to be a pretty hefty settlement. It is. And I'm not up to speed on this at all. Typically in these kind of settlements, it's prompted by a class action and there's a refund mm-hmm. to consumers. In this, it's the Department of Justice. So I imagine mm-hmm. there won't be a settlement. It'll probably just be a big old check written to uh, Uncle Sam. Yeah, I guess the question I still have is the class action lawsuit, was that filed by the government or was that filed by farmers? 
Oh, I missed that. I, I thought this was just a uh, DOJ investigation. It is. It is. But there's also a class action lawsuit, which I think was spurred, or I think the um, the Department of Justice, their probing was spurred by this class action lawsuit. Gotcha. That makes sense. So there probably is still a way for other consumers or growers mm-hmm. to get a check from Tyson or PPC or any of the others that are you know, implicated in this somehow. Yes, I think so. All right. Well, Ashton, what are you watching today? I am reading a article about cows being used to produce a COVID-19 vaccine. And so I saw this and immediately grabbed my attention just because there's been so much talk about a vaccine and how long it would take and antibody testing and all of that good stuff. And with cows being in the mix, I thought it was pretty interesting So a biotechnology company in South Dakota is using cows to produce human antibodies to fight off COVID-19 and clinical trials using the antibodies will begin this summer. So apparently this company genetically alters dairy cows so that certain immune cells carry the DNA that allows people to make the antibodies and the change allows the animals to manufacture large quantities of human antibodies against a pathogen protein injected into them. And apparently cows are a good choice to use in this antibody testing or um, vaccine trials to, they're a good choice for producing these antibodies because they have a lot of blood and their blood can contain twice as many antibodies per milliliter as human blood. So I thought it was very interesting, very scientific, and I don't exactly know the whole process or how long it'll take and all that good stuff, but I thought it was really interesting. So I think I will have to keep my eye on this as they begin testing this summer. Is the company SAB Biotherapeutics, Ashton? Yes. Okay. Yeah. We've had them on the podcast. It's been quite some time, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised that they are doing this. They've been working on a lot of cool things. Absolutely. Fascinating company. Folks, you can listen to that interview with SAB Biotherapeutics. They had just broken ground on their new facility when we spoke with them, mm-hmm. and they were ramping up production of flu vaccines. And, you know, we've heard heard a lot of comparisons of COVID to the flu, both the viruses. So it, I suppose, makes sense that they'd have the capacity to uh, to work on that as well with COVID. So check out our archives at agnewsdaily.com, and you can search for SAB Biotherapeutics, and uh, that interview should pull up from, yeah, gosh, probably a year or two ago, right, Delaney? Mm, yeah, I think so. Well, I am looking at some news from around the world. Now, I've got a question for you two, and I'm going to pose it to you right now. Delaney Howell, do you mm-hmm. eat cashews? I do. Ashton, do you eat cashews? I do. Where do you think 55% of global cashews are grown? Um, I'm going to say either California or China. All right, Ashton, do you have a guess? I think I'm just going to stick with Delaney because I have no clue. So I'm just going to kind of piggyback off of her. Perfect. And I did not know this answer. I would have probably guessed similar to you guys, but 55% of all cashews in the world are grown in West Africa. And Mm -hmm. I mention this because the West African uh, cashew harvest was kicking off just as COVID was starting to spread and the price for cashews collapsed. 
Typically what happens is uh, the cashews are harvested in Western Africa. They're shipped raw to processors, predominantly in Asia. And then from there, they are shipped around the world for consumption. But since there have been so many more cashews uh, grown in the last several years, the prices have been trending downward. With COVID and people quit going out, they quit shopping for really non-essentials, that includes cashews, uh, the price collapsed this year. And mm-hmm. so the farmers have basically just left their trees unharvested. And so now we could be looking at a shortage of cashews as we get into the second half of this year. So if you're out there, if you're an avid cashew eater, my advice would be to stock up soon. I always, like random stories like this, I always wonder where you find this stuff. It's interesting, but it just cracks me up sometimes. Cracks me up. Did you get that one? I'm plugged into the world of agriculture, Delaney Howe. Okay. I'm very proud of you. That was a good story. Right. It's fascinating stuff. And I love cashews. Salted heavily, of course, because Mm -hmm. I got to get all my iodine. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely agree there. Um, I think the only other piece of news I had for today... A quick update on the Dicamba situation, because we saw the plaintiffs in another case uh, basically come forth and say that the EPA has flagrantly contravened the Ninth Circuit's June 3rd order by allowing three Dicamba herbicides to be continued to be able to be used on over-the-top use on soybean and soybeans and cotton. And so we saw petitioners in this litigation had an emergency motion filed on Thursday, basically saying that the EPA shouldn't be allowed to continue the use of dicamba. And, you know, I don't even know 100% where this sits for everybody. Um, Like we said before, it kind of goes state by state as well. So it all just seems like a big mess right now. Well, yeah. And my assumption was, and again, uh, Ashton, I'm going to give you an assignment here live on the podcast. (laughs) Uh, Find a lawyer who can walk us through this stuff. Uh, Listeners, reach out to Ashton. Find us on uh, social media at Ag News Daily if uh, understanding how legal precedence works when we're coming to interactions between the Ninth Circuit and the EPA and then the subsequent states. Because yeah, now that the EPA has issued its guidance, my understanding was that's the national, that supersedes the states unless the states have stricter restrictions. But the Ninth Circuit superseded the EPA since they were the ones to found, found to be in violation. So yeah, it's a very confusing situation. I am almost positive that growers with you know, bulk units of uh, Enlist or Ingenia or, you know, any of these other dicamba herbicides will probably find their way onto fields this year unless there are buyback programs put into place. So, yeah, this is going to be an issue that will uh, dog us throughout the growing season, I am sure. Yes, I think it will. I have just one other story, and it's a follow-up to a piece I talked about earlier this week. I mentioned, I believe it was on Monday or Tuesday, the government of Argentina announced that they were going to take over Vincentin, uh, one of Argentina's largest soy processors. And I mentioned that when this was announced, it was <coughs> excuse me, not discussed with any of the really participants in that space. The government just sent an order to Congress that we are going to expropriate this company, and they went ahead and did it. Well, one of the partners of Vincentin that I mentioned was Glencore. And Glencore had been making a plan to buy out the remainder of Vincentin. And uh, now Glencore says 
that's being blocked. They're not going to be allowed to place a bid on the uh, the remainder of the company that they don't own, you know, in concert together. And uh, this is, I guess, pretty frustrating to that company because now they're also stuck with half of a stake in Renova, which is the domestic soybean company brand, or brand, I guess it is, that Vincent and Glencore had created to market bean meal and bean products in Argentina. And they're not sure they want to do business with the Argentinian government. So this is going to be an ongoing story. I mentioned on Monday, this could impact Argentina's soy crushing abilities as we get into this next year. And depending on how Glencore reacts, we could see some major wholesale changes to Argentina's soy processing, soy crushing industry over the next 12 to 18 months, which could certainly change the market. Argentina is the largest exporter of soy products and really one of our biggest competitors when it comes to selling meal into China. So we will have to keep an eye on what's going on down there in Argentina. We certainly will. But uh, speaking of prices and market movement, how did today's markets close, Mike? Well, that is a fantastic question, Delaney Howell. And I am going to pull up the markets right now, theoretically. <laughs> as she can pause, but no, my markets have frozen. Let's just see where these prices wrapped up. We've got mixed trade in corn, beans, and wheat found their way higher. July corn up a quarter cent at 3.30 even. The December contract down three quarters, closed at 3.43 even. Soybeans July up a nickel. Continued to see strong export news out of China. Another 120,000 metric tons of beans uh, uh, sold today. Well, sold to unknown, but assumed to be China. Uh, that raised the July to $8.71. The November contract up three cents at 8.79 and three quarters. Over in wheat, Chicago, July up two and a half cents at 501 and three quarters. The December up three quarters of a cent closed at 516 and a quarter. Looking at livestock, what started as green ended in red. Live cattle, August contract down $1.1250 at 9532 and a half. The October down 107.50 to finish at $98 even. We were seeing earlier today some weaker cash trade come in, four to five dollars below last week. That was probably putting pressure on the markets. Feeder cattle continued right along that same vein. The August contract down $1.07. 750 at 131.10. September down 77.5, closed at 132.47.50. And in lean hogs, weakness, the July down 45 cents at 51.67.5. The August down 22.5 to close at 54.65. Looking over at the dairy market, saw that step back yesterday. It is continuing today. The June down 3 cents at 20.42. The July down 31 cents, closed at 18.60. Well, without further ado, let's talk a little bit about the tax implications of something floating around Washington, D.C. with Chuck Connor from NCFC. Hey guys, when I'm not hosting Ag News Daily, I'm helping out with Iowa Farm Bureau's Spokesman Speaks podcast. If you're from Iowa, you're probably familiar with the Spokesman newspaper, which has the largest readership of any ag newspaper in the state of Iowa. The Spokesman Speaks podcast is essentially an extension of that newspaper, Reaching farmers and ag professionals like you on the go with the stories that matter most. In this week's podcast episode, I'm very excited because we take on the question that is absolutely top of mind right now for livestock farmers. As meat processing plants struggle to keep up with farmer demand, where can farmers turn to market their livestock? For answers, we turn to Terry Kearns who's the co-owner of Eastern Iowa's popular Edgewood Locker, and Dr. Catherine Polking, 
who is the bureau chief for the Iowa Department of Agriculture's Meat and Poultry Inspection Bureau. You can find and subscribe to the Spokesman Speaks podcast in your favorite podcast app or go to iowafarmbureau.com slash podcast. Well, for today's interview, we are catching up with the National Council of Farmer Cooperative President and CEO, Chuck Connor. Chuck, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to join you as well. I want to ask, start out by asking a little bit about what the NCFC has been doing during COVID-19. Before we get to the bulk of today's discussion regarding the quote-unquote grain glitch, as you look at where we're at now with COVID-19, how has that been impacting the cooperative industry? Well, it's had a significant impact like it has on the rest of American agriculture. You know, as an organization that we are, are, are typically what I rec- you know call a, a, a sort of um, an organization based upon the relationships that we have both in the administration and on Capitol Hill. And so we, we were not uh, work from home kind of people, which we have all had to learn how to do over the last few months. But uh, there's been so much going on. And, you know, those first weeks, we were just simply trying to help the administration understand the impact that uh, co-ops played in the food supply chain and how we, you know, we needed to be considered uh, essential, if you will, and keep our uh, operations going in order to prepare for spring planning. Um, but, you know, all in all, um, Delaney, that has worked out pretty well for us. And I, I don't use the term normal in the kind of times we're in, but we did the closest thing to a normal spring planning um, as, as what uh, you could expect, given the, the crazy circumstances that exist in America today. Absolutely. It has been a bizarre year, especially for folks when they're going to you know, pick up seed, pick up chemical, drop off, you know, make any sales or anything. Yeah, I've seen a lot of co-ops make some adjustments around the country. But it sounds like Washington is trying to make you guys have another adjustment. Talk us through what's going on here with Section 199A. Well, I appreciate that um, opportunity. And um, this, you know, this really does have to go back. Uh, three years a little bit, and I'll try and be brief here, but when uh, the Congress was first started talking about the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017, uh, we were a little nervous, and we had been pre- preparing for this for a while because we could see this coming, and we were nervous because for the farmers and ranchers of America, uh, particularly those with any kind of significant relationship with a co-op, no matter what you did with their tax rate, if you took away their Section 199 deduction, they were going to be paying more in taxes. And, you know, this put us in, a, in an awkward spot because, you know, by its very name, the Congress was trying to give a tax cut. But yet in the process of doing that, by debating taking away 199, they were indeed going to be taking a lot more money out of farmers' pockets. And we knew that wasn't their goal. And so we made this case to the Congress during this debate, and uh, Congress uh, heard us. And, and they tried, you know, to fix this problem. The only thing is, you know, we sort of describe it as they overshot the runway. And they actually gave us far more than we were asking for, uh, to be honest. It was not our old 199 deduction that we had asked to keep. It was something, in fact, far more generous than that. And uh, while we celebrated for a couple of days, it quickly set into us that this was not right. You know, it wasn't the, the tax policy that... Uh, we should have and wasn't what we asked for. And so we uh, willingly agreed to 
participate with uh, uh, other grain companies, privately held grain companies, and to try and fix what was done the grain glitch in order to get us back to what we had originally asked for, which was the old 199 deduction. Something that would continue to help farmers, help co-ops, and do so in a way that would not result in higher taxes. We thought we did that legislatively, and in March of 2018, uh, virtually by unanimous consent, and this, you know, this doesn't happen in Congress much today, but by virtual unanimous consent, Congress passed a fix to the green glitch that very specifically said co-ops, you know, get to, to keep their old 199 deduction, and, and we're not going to give them this sort of 199 plus that we had passed, that they had passed originally. So we thought the debate was over, and um, Lo and behold, when Treasury then this uh, earlier this year issued their uh, regulations to implement uh, this provision, uh, they left out a key portion uh, of our old 199 deduction, which is the portion that allows us to, to add into the calculation the business that we do out there that is done with non-members of the cooperative, what we call non-patronage income. In some cases, a significant part of the overall deduction and by taking away that non-patronage element, again, we're back facing a circumstance where for some farmers, despite the rate cuts in the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, they're going to be paying more in taxes again. And I know that wasn't the intent of the administration, and I don't think it was the intent of anybody in Congress to say that farmers needed to pay more in taxes. But that's what we're facing, again, if, if Treasury does not alter this proposed regulation that they have now moved uh, forward through the process. So, Chuck, let me ask a point of clarity here. You mentioned that one of the changes you want to see fixed is the non-patronage members. Do co-op members as of now under the current grain program, Section 199A program, pay taxes on money that's sent out to non-patronage members? The way the rules work, generally speaking, Delaney, is that uh, for any business that co-ops do with uh, non-members, they pay corporate tax rates on, on that business. For money that they do with members, it's taxed, you know, at the member level through the patronage that the co-op then passes through to the members based upon the amount of business they have done with the co-op. And that has always, you know, been the case. That's called subchapter T. It's been in effect for a very, very long time, and, and that's been non-controversial. But from the beginning of the 199 deduction, which you know, goes back um, many, many years, co-ops were always allowed to include the non-patronage business in the overall calculation of that 199 deduction. That has never not been the case. So, you know, when we're talking about uh, negotiating to preserve the old deduction, obviously that was a key part of that because we've never been without non-patronage as part of that deduction. So Chuck, when you look ahead and in your conversations with folks up on Capitol Hill and in the Treasury Department, what is the time, I, I guess, what prompted them to make these changes and to, to make this an issue once again in farm country? This is the third time we've talked about it in as many years. You guys got to be beating your heads against the wall. Why does this keep coming out? <laughs> well, we are beating our head against the wall, just to be honest. And, and again, when, when we voluntarily agreed to fix a provision that was too generous with us, I mean, we, you know, we were told by many members of Congress, we never actually had anybody willingly participate, take something away from themselves. And, you know, 
we truly felt like we were doing the honorable thing by, by fixing the glitch, if you will. And we could have very easily hunkered down and said, you know, we're going to do everything we can to stall Congress, which is not hard to do in these times, uh, into not changing this. And, and, you know, and we'll have tax-free operations for a long time. We didn't do that. So, you know, just by the very fact that, that despite our um, willingness to take uh, negotiate something away from ourselves, that now this issue is suddenly back before us again. And we are frustrated. I'll just tell you that. Very frustrated. We thought we had put this issue to rest. You know, I've been uh, in, in this business for 40 years. And, and, you know, one of my demands was that the uh, legislative intent of Congress, when they passed the green glitch, was to be very clear just to avoid this very circumstance. because, And, and, and it, in my opinion, it was as instructive as any language I have seen coming out of the Congress on what the, the, the government of the United States, in this case, the Department of Treasury, was supposed to do. The language was clear. The written uh, uh, explanation of the intent of Congress through the uh, committee reports was very clear. But yet it's all been ignored. And, and this has been put forward and, and we're frustrated. Yeah, I can imagine you're frustrated. I'm imagining some farmers are probably pretty frustrated by this as well. But Chuck, when you look at a timeline for this, what's your estimate to getting this stuff wrapped up and solved? <laughs> well, that's one of the frustrating things about it too, Delaney, because this this was a rule that was proposed prior to COVID-19. And um, once COVID-19 hit, we, we more or less were told that, that the Department of Treasury had put all of this on hold because obviously they had some much, much higher profile things to deal with in terms of COVID-19. And so we had pulled back our lobbying efforts. And I, I'm the one who made the call to pull back those efforts, uh, thinking, again, we were doing the right thing and it would be inappropriate to be bugging Treasury about this at a time when they're trying to sort of fight the virus and keep the economy you know, from totally collapsing here. But in the midst of COVID-19, they, you know, they actually moved the uh, uh, the rule forward, totally unbeknownst to us, unbeknownst to any uh, of our supporters on Capitol Hill who were promised that they would be given an opportunity to, you know, to come in and talk about these things. Literally, we, you know, I, I get a call and, and the, the rule has been moved forward to the Office of Management and Budget. And, and no one had, had known that. So there, there's just so many elements of this that are frustrating, particularly given the times that we're in when, you know, for government to work well, we ought to all be communicating with each other more, not less. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Chuck, we certainly appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Delaney. You guys have a nice day. Thank you so much. All right, folks. Well, if you are active or an owner of a co-op, a member of a co-op in your area, this could have an impact on you. Give the co-op a call. See how you can get active to make some changes, get that voice heard in D.C. Before we let you go, it is a Friday, so we want to leave you laughing. Here's something from our good friend, Tim the Dairy Farmer. Tim again. You ever see somebody driving down the road and you're like, man, that guy ain't right. Well, a farmer recently broke a world record for driving his tractor in reverse for over 12 miles. To most people, this sounds like quite an achievement. But here are the details, and you tell me. First off, the man was an Irish farmer in Ireland. 
so you know alcohol was definitely involved. The YouTube video even says he started his drive at the Liz Gray Pub. And secondly, he was driving his 30-year-old Case tractor. Case or not, at least the only problem with his tractor was the fact that all forward gears didn't work. If I wanted to enter the contest, not only would my tractor not go forward, I would have to top off the hydraulic oil, fill the radiator, air up the three tires, jump it off with my truck, and then bang the starter with a hammer just to start the dang thing. Kudos to this guy for winning a record. I had to back my truck up three feet the other day and still ran into the damn barn. Hey, this is Tim the Dairy Farmer. To hear more about me, go to timthedairyfarmer.com. I hope y'all are safe and keep milking it. Well, again, a big thank you there to Tim. If you need another little chuckle over the weekend, be sure to check out the latest Dryline Farmer podcast episode, which Ashton actually got to be a part of. I listened to it yesterday on my drive home from work, and it definitely kept me laughing the whole time. Definitely not politically correct. So if you get offended easily, wouldn't recommend that one. Well, that's the beautiful thing about podcasts. You can say whatever you want. If somebody doesn't like it, they can turn it off. <laughs> exactly. But we certainly hope you do not turn off the Ag News Daily Podcast. In fact, we hope you go back and re-listen to some past episodes. You can find all of them and more at globalagnetwork.com. With that, Mike, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.